is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome to the Asia Insight podcast series by the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm Doug Strube, Assistant Director of NBR's Center for Innovation, Trade, and Strategy. This is the second of a three-part mini-series discussing the National Bureau of Asian Research's recent report, China's Digital Ambitions, a Global Strategy to Supplant the Liberal Order. In this episode, we're again joined by the project's principal investigator, Emily Delabruyere, but this time she'll be hosting a discussion with three of the report's authors, focusing on how China is carrying out its digital strategy. She's joined by Samantha Hoffman, a senior analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Karen Sutter, a senior analyst focusing on U.S.-China trade, investment, and economic issues, with over 30 years of experience working on U.S.-Asia policy issues, and Nigel Corey, Associate Director for Trade Policy at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Samantha authored the report's first chapter, focusing on China's exportation of digital infrastructure. Karen authored the second chapter, which explored how the Chinese state helps facilitate the expansion of Chinese digital platforms abroad. And Nigel authored a chapter on China's efforts to influence global digital governance norms and rules through a wide range of various tactics. Lastly, I want to mention that Karen Sutter is speaking in her personal capacity today, and her remarks on this podcast are solely her own views based on her research and writing for this report, and they do not reflect the views of her employer. And with that, over to you, Emily. Thank you all so much for joining. It's thrilling to have the chance actually to speak after being buried in respective writing. And there's so much interplay too among these chapters that I think it's likely this conversation just takes on a life of its own. Um, and I disappear from whatever proceeds. But Sam, I want to start with you, both because you wrote the first chapter of this report and also because you really literally lay the foundation for everything else in it. Um, your chapter focuses on China's construction of digital infrastructure internationally and the implications of that. The gut reaction is, of course, yes, that's 5G and that's surveillance. But you make very clear in your chapter that that's really only a tiny sliver of what Beijing is doing and also the implications or the risks that that, that presents. Can you walk us through that? Can you walk us through like what this mainstream buzz and story is missing about what's actually happening? Thanks, Emily. Sure. Uh, so uh, one of the things that I think is important to draw attention to in all the conversation about China and tech authoritarianism um, is what like what's the infrastructure we're talking about and and what it's actually doing because in china the infrastructure uh would be contributing to both problem solving um as well as coercive control and those two things aren't mutually exclusive and so oftentimes when i'm asked a question in in, in um conversations that i'm having uh about uh you know who who might be adopting authoritarian technologies globally the assumption that's being um, embedded in the question is what other authoritarian regimes are using uh, that technology in a similar way, or what technologies are being exported globally that can be used for China to conduct espionage. So that's the whole Huawei debate. But what's being missed in there is that in China, because these technologies are also problem solving um, across a number of different areas where problem solving uh, is you know, defined by the, the party state, 
data that is collected for seemingly and sort of innocuous reasons or everyday reasons can also contribute to other um, other things uh, related to state security. And the same goes when those technologies are exported globally. Uh, so a technology uh, that's related to, say, uh, if you're talking about maybe data related to logistics, you, you know, that, that would serve its immediate purpose, but then could potentially uh, link to uh, national defense mobilization in a time of crisis, um, like, like COVID-19 or, or a war. Um, and so when we, when we talk about this uh, sort of issue of the expansion of Chinese infrastructure globally, we need to think a little bit more broadly about the problem set, uh, instead of focusing narrowly on our own concepts of, of national security or end use um, and who, who, who has, who's using that technology once it's actually deployed. Awesome. And this actually leads, I think, really directly into, into Karen, into your chapter and to the question of platforms. You indicate that one of the ways digital infrastructures can grant China access or control over data is these touch points that platforms provide and that make this a kind of architecture different than you know, other infrastructures that might transport resources. Do you mind explaining this idea of you know, touch points and how they relate to the controller's access to or influence over the digital environment? Sure. No, um, it, it's an important area. I think, you know, when looking at digital platforms um, in my research, that the sense I had was just this is the potential point where a lot of China's digital sovereignty and technology efforts can converge. And so, you know, looking at what Sam was talking about with, you know, digital infrastructure, digital architecture, you know, you have the hardware, you have the software. Uh, and you have all kinds of different data flowing across these platforms. So you're looking at individual data, you're looking at data uh, that's aggregated from businesses, from other institutes, from governments. Uh, and you're looking at, I think the other thing that's really important to think about is that when people talk about digital or digital platforms, I think sometimes there's a sense that this is a technological niche when in fact, with the digitalization of economic, commercial activity, social activity quite broadly, information quite broadly, um, it's touching everything. It's touching commerce, trade, finance, health, information, media, all of it, you name it, it it's now part of this. And so when you talk about touch points, uh, this convergence, I think, becomes very, very powerful. And I, I guess the other point I would make is that there's a lot of emphasis with regard to digital platforms as far as sharing of information, uh, the exchange that happens. I think there's less discussion of the control, uh, the control you know, in, in a back office sense uh, that you may not see, and then also control on the front end. Uh, and one thing to think about as we're talking is that you know, some of the areas of touch points and control for the Chinese state, because the Chinese state has a heavy influence in their digital activity um, may actually be a positive, may be seen as a positive for the consumer. You know, this issue of convergence, functionality might be attractive at a superficial glance, not appreciating all the different touch points and convergence that might be creating for a state actor on, on the back end. You talked in that, or you just mentioned that this is individual data, it's business data, it's governments, that this relates to consumers um, across finance, across health. And I think that really drives home um, the point that 
this digital infrastructure isn't something that's just being deployed by governments or even that's primarily deployed by governments, which I think gets to a point, actually all three of you, but Karen, I'm picking on you right now, um, you in particular talk about in your chapter, which is that China relies on its commercial sector to deploy these systems. Is that different than what other countries are doing? How does this play out? How much of a role is that playing in China's digital strategy? China has a very statist approach to the development of its digital sector. And so whether you're looking at the underlying technologies, the standards, the infrastructure, the software, uh, the companies providing the digital platform services, um, these may be corporate entities. They may be structured as corporate entities, but underlying are very heavy state controls. It's either state alignment from the beginning or it's state alignment that comes along. We're seeing a lot of push and pull in the Chinese market domestically right now, where the Chinese government is seeking to assert even greater control over certain commercial actors. Uh, but there is this state alignment to have basically uh, controls and touch points uh, across the activity, uh, the data, the flows, uh, and also in the case of um, some of the underlying technology, you know, looking at um, China's development of blockchain technology, looking at their plans uh, for a digital platform for uh, renewable energy trading with state grid. These technologies are all developed by the state through state institutes that then provide that technology to the corporate actor. So there's a lot of alignment uh, across these players and a very heavy state role that is often visible, but it's not always the first thing you see. The phrase I see over and over in Chinese industrial planning, which I think captures this really well, is that it's, quote, state-led enterprise driven. And you know, that tells you a lot about the you know, building up of this kind of bottom-up infrastructure using companies that are being deployed internationally according to incentives shaped by Beijing. But Nigel, I think this is where you come in because you're really the third piece of this framing and but what you wrote about digital government governance is much more a bottom down affair and something less a function i think maybe of commercial players and more of governments and how they interact how does digital governance engage or overlap or connect to this question of digital infrastructure and platforms i think uh thankfully i'm very much uh, aligned with what sam and karen have already mentioned in that Essentially, the digital governance is the software to the hardware, right? Uh, the the rules and regulations that that go on top of the the ICT hardware and and the ICT goods that uh, define our digital world. But the 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 Chinese approach, uh, I think, articulates this um, state-led, state-managed development that Karen mentioned. And while obviously China has a very successful, very innovative sort of set of private companies that operate in their digital economy, I think what's become clearly evident is that they are there at the behest of the uh, the Chinese state and that there are clear limits to which they are allowing them to grow and that uh, the state is not afraid of enacting data privacy, cybersecurity, competition and other rules that, that rein them in. As long as it is a potential threat to their key overarching goal, which is regime stability, it doesn't really matter whether the, the firm is domestic or foreign. The, 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 the approach remains the same. But what we've seen, I suppose, change uh, that I found really interesting to, to talk with officials as part of my research for my chapter is that 
um, there's been a, a noticeable shift in them turning uh, inwards uh, to turning outwards in terms of that they've put in place some key foundational laws and regulations at home over the last five years. But they've not only done that, but they've started to embrace uh, the, the goal of uh, pursuing their objectives of a state-managed, state-directed internet globally, which is different. And so we've seen uh, Chinese officials uh, increasingly uh, assertively, increasingly confident in, in pushing for their preferred approach to a sort of a state-controlled or state-managed internet globally over the last few years, which is really quite different. And, and their approach really is quite different to the fundamental fundamentally um, distributed nature of the internet that goes underneath it. And so while there has always obviously been a clash between the the software that runs, that is sort of, uh, that reflects how each country manages its digital economy, that contrast has only really been brought into sort of like really clear, uh, into a really clear contrast of late with China being increasingly assertive on the global stage about how it wants to, to pursue its goals globally. I just wanted to build, Nigel, on something you were saying. I think it's important to also think about um, some of these terms that are used in the Chinese context, you know, the term privacy, the term competition, the term open, I think means very different things in the Chinese context because um, the whole system of law is geared towards advancement of state interest in China, not protection of individual interest. And so when the government is talking about privacy, competition, openness, it's to advance the interests of the state. And so sometimes that looks similar to what might happen in, you know, a, a U in the United States or another market, but there are different drivers and I think different results sometimes as well it's not exactly the same because there aren't pure market forces. It's really the state asserting itself of, you know, privacy for making sure the state still gets the information. Openness and competition to make sure that there's not one dominant corporate actor in China, but that the state is the dominant player, that the state retains certain control and access, especially on the platforms, for example. Yeah, and I think I think that's so clearly evident, such as uh, China's personal information protection law, when uh, which obviously is one amongst many that countries have enacted, and that there were folks saying like, oh, look, it takes elements from the European Union's general data protection regulation. Look at that, but then you have to recognise, uh, as is consistent throughout all key sort of Chinese digital regulations, is that there is clear room for the Chinese state to intervene as they see fit. And that that's that's a feature, not a bug. And so that gets to Karen's point that there, there are new and updated and sometimes really cutting edge rules and regulations that deal with legitimate issues online. But in each and every component, there is the clear ability for the state to intervene as they see fit. So for example, privacy rules can't use your personal information, but the Chinese state can, you know, that type of differentiation, yeah. I love that you mentioned that because, Sam, when you wrote your chapter, you have this fantastic section summarizing China's data regulations and laws. And 
in the throes of the editing process, I think I said, ah, that's a lot of space that we're dedicating to legislation and laws in a chapter on infrastructure. And you very rightfully pointed out that that was absolutely necessary for understanding what China's doing and why it matters. So thank you, A, for pointing that out. But also, do you want to just jump in here and talk about why this is necessary for understanding it and some of the key points that you raised there? Thank you. Yeah, and thanks for letting me keep it in the chapter. I know it's quite a lengthy, a lengthy bit. You know, one of one of the things that was almost missed in most of the conversation about China's data security law was the framing. And interestingly, in one of the opening clauses, and I can't remember which uh, which um, article it was, it says that the central state security leading mechanism is in charge of overseeing, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but overseeing China's data security strategy is essentially what, what it, it outlines. And, and that's the term um, used in legal documents to refer to China's Central State Security Commission, which is a CCP-led body under Xi Jinping. And, and that tells you right away that it, it frames the data security law in particular as um, being part of this broader state security concept, which puts the party's political security at its core. And, and it explains that, you know, it's that body, the this, this Central State Security Commission, that's responsible for overseeing this overall strategy within China. And, and so that's actually quite, uh, I think, the, one of the most important things about that law, which was largely over, overlooked in, in a lot of, of the conversation. And the difference between that law and the personal information protection law was one was largely framing what the party expects the state apparatus to do. And then the other was largely framing how companies and individuals should behave. And even though there are some limits in both laws on the power of the state, there are also clauses that explicitly say the um, that actually these limits don't don't really matter when when other laws are applicable. I think the um, I'm trying to re remember but, but basically, it, it says that um, the personal information protection law, the, the limits are um, things that don't matter if other laws are applicable in those in those situations. And so that gives the state the opportunity to still do what it wants. Now, sort of stepping back to a, a point that Karen made earlier on the definition of concepts being different in, in China versus, versus elsewhere. And, and I think that's an important thing to consider when we're thinking about technologies. If you think about digital currency, for instance, you know, a lot of the debate on the implications of China's DCEP has focused on, you know, the international internationalization of the RMB. And what others others point out uh, is that, well, actually the technology is 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 the piece that, that we need to be looking at. And one of the things that uh, that I've looked at in my own research is just the definition of what would flag some transaction as being uh, reviewed for potential terrorist financing or reviewed for corruption. Um, and, and those definitions are different. So even if you're thinking that you're looking at something objective, you have to remember that that, that legal system has a different definition of what's correct and incorrect behavior. And the same goes uh, for, for any sort of technology that we're talking about in, in this, in this um, book, uh, which would be that, um, you know, the definitions of, of what, what could be uh, normal behavior and abnormal behavior change depending on what legal system you're talking about. And I think Sam's point gets to a, a central part of my chapter in that what we, as me as an economist, as a as a trade lawyer that's steeped in the the economics of of parts of this, 
we have to grapple with their conceptualization of national security and cybersecurity, and how does that mesh or not with uh, the legal framework that underpins the global trading system at the World Trade Organization. And what we have to realize is that, I mean, it sort of goes to the adage that sort of the young man knows the rules, but the old man knows the exceptions, because when it comes to trade rules, the rules are only as meaningful as the exceptions are very narrow and or excluded. And what China is, uh, as it, it tentatively and increasingly assertively steps into these global digital economic discussions is seeking to push for rules on the digital economy and data that align with its uh, preference for a state-directed, state-managed internet, but and and do so in a way that includes sort of the, these concepts or its its definition and application of these, these concepts that allow it to do so. So essentially what they would love to see in a global trade agreement on e-commerce at the World Trade Organization, which is currently being negotiated, where China's at the table, is a broad self-judging exception for national security, because that's an essential component of all of its domestic laws. It does not want to be constrained by trade law uh, if it clashes with uh, political interests at home. And so that's a major challenge, because obviously that doesn't provide the certainty of market access and fair and non-discriminatory treatment in China's digital economy and stands in stark contrast to the types of very detailed, very prescriptive, very sort of narrowly defined exceptions that exist in the uh, the, the CPTPP trade agreement that involves much of the rest of the Asia Pacific. And, and so you have these, these clashing approaches and and then you throw Europe into the mix, which obviously wants a broad self-judging exception for privacy. And we we have, I suppose, a major battle over how different countries define and apply these core concepts or these core exceptions, which, which they think are central to how they manage the internet and their digital economy. I wanted to come back to something that um, Sam mentioned and Nigel was building on with this, um, looking at the example of China's central bank digital currency, because I think it shows how China is doing a couple things simultaneously. So if you look at how they're launching DCEP, you know, you look at how they used um, Android and Apple operating systems to pilot this, um, the currency during the Winter Olympics. And then you look at how they're developing a national uh, blockchain technology on which a digital currency could ride. And then you look at Huawei's uh, use of its Harmony um, operating system that it's trying to launch uh, through, through Giddy in, uh, in Europe. Uh, and then you look at, you know, also PBOC, People's Bank of China, PBOC's relationship with China Union Pay, as far as, you know, monopoly back office settlement that, you know, it's very similar to what China does in other areas. If you look at China using both GPS and Beidou, if you look at China using GitHub and get its own open source Giddy, you know, to exchange innovation information, uh, China's riding a lot of, you know, you could look at it in cloud computing as well and in infrastructure where when it's convenient, China is using existing architecture from other countries and markets, but it's simultaneously building out its own systems. And so sometimes I think that that's missed, that it's benefiting from this ability, this fluidity 
uh, to go back and forth. And the other point I would make here is this um, asymmetry in a lot of areas with regard to digital platforms in how China is so closed to foreign participation unless it needs certain capabilities. Uh, and yet China is expanding unfettered in most markets, taking advantage of the lack of restrictions or regulations in a lot of gray areas uh, and governments not insisting on reciprocity uh, and with respect to digital, digital trade. So I just wanted to raise those issues for discussion because I think they're really important. And Karen, you point out in your chapter that those give China this asymmetric advantage, that it's able to take advantage of the open international system of, for example, innovation resources, and then incubate market players at home that are going to go out and conquer international markets. And you also mention how you have this international fragmented ecosystem and China can kind of barrel through with its very centralized, clear strategy and co-opt players in the process. And in your chapter, you describe this from the perspective of exporting international platforms. Nigel, do you see the same thing playing out in China's efforts to reshape digital governance? Yeah, and it's such an interesting dynamic to see play out because it stands in stark contrast to the, I suppose, the status quo approach to to this. But it's it, there, as I think I make the point in my, my chapter, while China may be late to the game in 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 trying to set rules for the global internet, it's it, it's not uh, late to have a major impact because there is still really a large vacuum as it relates to international law and international governance about how we how countries deal with the many new and emerging uh, issues raised by our increasingly digital world, and so. It's uh, it's still seizing the moment, and so uh, and it's doing so in a more concerted and unified way, which also stands in contrast to what the United States and its partners in Europe and Asia have done. It's still it's taking advantage of the the fractured, uh, sort of somewhat sometimes disinterested or unengaged approach that many countries take to these issues, whereas it has a clear agenda. It has a clear foundation of laws and approaches at home that it's applying online, uh, it, that it's 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 asserting globally. And uh, to Sam's point, it's sometimes it's often finding a receptive audience in that its state-directed approach to these issues naturally appeals to many countries. It obviously appeals to those that already have an authoritarian political basis but it appeals to many other countries where the policymakers quite understandably are grappling with how do they address all of these issues online with privacy and cybersecurity and cybercrime and, and law enforcement and everything else. And China's approach looks relatively uh, appealing because it has a strong role for the state, it's centrally managed, there's, there's laws on the books. And so that's really sort of should have hopefully sent up the flare for every other country that appreciates and values sort of an open rules based approach to the internet and and taking a sort of a balanced risk based approach to to uh, all of the issues the internet throws up really throws into stark contrast that that they need to up their game to compete because China's approach really does appeal and as I describe it to policymakers when they ask me about the competing approaches, is that it's as much, well, it's as much supply driven as it is demand pushed in that countries are in the market for solutions to deal with this and they're looking around for 
reference points and China is a ready-made reference point on all of this. And then obviously as China goes out and deploys Chinese-based infrastructure projects and as Chinese firms increasingly engage globally, they're also able to simultaneously sort of indirectly and directly advocate for China-style digital data regulations and restrictions. Yeah, I would just add, I think what Nigel's saying is really important. And I think there's a risk of underestimating what China is doing and what they could accomplish because of their statist approach that outside of China, there tends to be a view of looking at individual company activity of non-Chinese companies or deals going case by case. But if you look at Chinese behavior, it's very strategic because they're working against a, you know, they're basically expanding what they're creating domestically in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and there's a broader blueprint of, of where they wanna go. And, and as a result, you know, how do these things connect? Uh, and I think that point that I made earlier about it's not just digital, it's, you know, digital platforms are inherently a disruptive technology. And so I think the other thing to think about is how digital platforms and digital activity allows China not just to break into digital markets per se, but basically into critical infrastructure. Markets that are traditionally have very high barriers in many countries to foreign participation, financial services, health, uh, media, other kinds of infrastructure, energy, uh, and that this is a way to break into some of those areas. So I, I think just to put that out there for something else to think about. I think a, a related issue that, that we've sort of touched on, on thematically, but maybe we want to talk a little bit more specifically about would be standard setting. Um, and Emily, I know, I know you talk about this in, in your chapter, but in the chapter that I wrote, I talk a little bit about the way that standards are set for technologies domestically within China, uh, where government research entities um, collaborate with companies to develop technical standards for, um, you know, if you're talking about facial recognition systems or voice recognition systems, um, platforms uh, for video and information databases and so on, all of those are set at a, at a national level in China. And in order for a company to win a bid domestically, um, they're expected to meet those standards. And um, so, if those companies are developing their technologies and the innovation is, is, is to meet the party state's needs, those things are going global as well. And we know oftentimes the debate is focused on like China's activity in the ITU and other, and other standard settings bodies, but, but what we're missing is what's happening for the market activity, which both Nigel and, and, and Karen have touched on previously. But that gets, I mean, I think all of these points get to the pushback I consistently hear, like Nigel, you mentioned that China's approach appeals to a lot of players, also that it's filling a vacuum. And we need digital governance, we need digital infrastructure. Who's gonna build a smart city if it's not an authoritarian high-tech government? And you know, the consistent response is someone's gonna build it, it'll be controlled by somebody. Why not have that be Beijing? Um, and I'm curious in whether that's standard setting or international governance or the actual market activity of building the infrastructures. I'm curious, Sam, as to how you answer that question, if you get it. Um, there, there are a number of answers to that question. The first one that I think I'm increasingly thinking about is what problems is technology solving? Oftentimes governments are seeking technology to um, provide a solution, but we aren't exactly clear how that technology is going to provide the solution. And so perhaps we need to have more public um, policy debates on, on what 
what we're actually seeking out of technology. Um, because a smart city solution sounds fine. China has a very clear vision for how it wants to use those technologies. Elsewhere, maybe that's less coherent. And, and so, you know, before we jump on, on what we need and who, who's making it, what, why do we need it and what problems are we trying to solve, um, I think is probably one of the questions that, that we need to be asking a little bit more. One, one sort of example that I've thrown out a lot recently is, is um, the COVID-19 check-in apps or contact tracing as they've been used in Australia. I noticed that back in sort of July when the outbreak started to become more, more serious here and they started implementing um, they, they had like two weeks of, in the Australian capital tour of territory of wearing masks. And then they took that away and then just required COVID check-in check up. Uh, but that was, you know, not necessarily the most effective thing because the masks are preventative and the check-in is after the virus has already spread. So is technology really solving the problem or does it make the government feel like it's solving problems? Um, and then that's, the, you know, those are things that we need to think about. The other would be um, what values are we aiming to protect with, with technology? Um, those are the debates that I think need to be had. And, you know, we, we go to Europe, uh, that answer will be different than it would be in Australia and in the United States and Latin America elsewhere. And so I think these are conversations we have, need to have in order to get to the answers to the question that you've asked. I don't know that we're there yet to be able to have those answers. I would say we're definitely not there yet. And and as I, I see it, this this lack of action and, and forethought appeals in the trade spaces, very few countries are, are sort of willing to clearly articulate how they're willing to make agreements around their values as it relates to these digital issues in a way uh, with their partners that are broadly compatible, even though obviously the United States, Australia, Japan, Canada and Europe um, share much more in common than they do apart, even they can't um, sort of define their approach to these issues from a trade law perspective um, thus far. And so that in a, that inaction, that inability to it really it contributes to the, the vacuum in in the United States and others uh, stepping in to provide an alternative uh, reference point in terms of laws and regulation and in institutions that uh, other countries, especially developing countries, uh, are on in the market for, and so that's it's it's a real challenge in terms of how do we uh, get bro broadly on the same page so that we can present a united front to to provide a valid uh, sort of pragmatic, tangible alternative to China's approach. I would just add that even at a country level, it seems that China's taking a first mover advantage in most countries not setting terms of market participation in general, and then additional considerations of what if the market participant is a state-led, state-controlled, state-influenced actor, uh, and then this issue of convergence of across different providers, um, you know, if individual information is shared across platforms, how, you know, and then it's coming back to a state actor or even a corporate actor. How do you handle, you know, that type of participation? And I think it's it's moving very quickly. And so, you know, just make the point that in some ways China is a latecomer. It's catching up um, to leadership by the United States and others in digital platforms. But in other areas, because China is digitalizing its economy so rapidly, you look at their goals and their 14th five-year plan, uh, it's moving ahead. And so it's creating facts on the ground and it's creating, as we talked about earlier, its own standards and rules to go with this. 
Uh, and so you have to move quickly if you're going to get e either respond or get out ahead of it, it would seem. And I think there, Karen, you lay out like precisely the challenge that faces the U.S. its allies and partners and really the multilateral system, which means that I think Nigel and Sam now have to close us out with resolving the challenge. So just a little small task for um, our most of our evenings. Sam, if you were to fix all of this, what are one, one and a half or two policy measures that any single government and or the international community should be considering to respond to this? Sure. So in my chapter, I talk about um, two, two things in particular. Uh, one would be to recalibrate what uh, data security policy and privacy frameworks to account for the fact that in the PRC, uh, regulations aren't motivated by the same drivers as we've discussed in, in uh, throughout the duration of this podcast. Because even when there's some some commonalities, um, the state security um, sort of driven nature will always make that a distinguishing feature in China. So more effective data security policy and privacy frameworks um, will account for, for that wider range of risk. Uh, another thing that I focus on is taking a more um, robust approach to due diligence on decisions related to di digital infrastructure. Right now, I think that um, you know, I hear a lot in Australia the term country agnostic approach, uh, and I don't think that's that's useful because different state actors have different interests and as, as we've outlined and it's just not it's not practical to think that way. Um, but also, you know, due diligence to think about who has access to data downstream. Um, who, who are those actors? Because you can you can you can find a little bit of detail. Of course, this is very difficult to find, and this is where I think governments need to invest in the kind of research um, that would make um, tools available to local governments and companies that are having to make these decisions. Um, but you know, in another paper that I did, I, I talked about how um, propaganda department had technology built into products that were sold as smart city as part of smart city solutions uh, or uh, globally and so you know where where is the data going and who, who is using it and are are you okay with that that should be part of the due diligence um sort of process and i don't think that there's some uh, enough sophistication in the way that we're asking these questions now so building on sam's point i think for the united states they really need to do need to get their act together in uh, a handy starting point would be to essentially develop what we've called for in terms of a grand global digital strategy. And in recognising that you can't put these issues in a single agency or a single bucket, that they span across all of these different areas and and they're related. And at the moment, uh, the fact that the U United States doesn't take a a comprehensive, detailed approach to identifying and responding to what China's trying to do uh, obviously just undermines US interests and goals and that of that those shared by Australia, Japan and, and Europe and others. And so it needs to start by getting its own act together. Obviously, ideally, that would include a comprehensive data privacy law in the United States to set a baseline, uh, thus also providing another reference point for other countries around the world. But it extends to empowering institutions like the US uh, National Institute of Standards and Technologies to to take on a more proactive role in in advocating for its cybersecurity framework and its risk-based approach to AI and other issues there. And as I was describing to a US official today is like the US government needs to develop policy muscles which uh, at the moment they don't really have and it needs to like pump them full of steroids to catch up uh, and get on the page. And that includes 
uh, I think, and this dovetails with with what we've all written about is like developing a cadre of of uh, digital policy and standards experts who are paying attention to all of the various forums, not just the ITU, but everywhere where China is seeking to advocate for its state uh, directed approach to the internet because at the moment it's not getting the type of attention it requires. And we saw that in the haphazard, slow response that the US and others had to China's global initiative on data security. And so it needs to sort of do, uh, sort of set up this, this response mechanism and this capability. And then finally, it needs to recognize, as I sort of mentioned before, that it shares more in common with its trading partners, despite their long history of often bitter disputes, and recognize that, say, the United States and Europe share far more in common in being democratic, rule of law, uh, rule respecting countries on these digital issues that they share much more in common and working together than they do apart, especially in contrast to digital authoritarian countries like China and Russia. And if you were to bridge that gap, then, then China's in real trouble because China doesn't fear sort of bilateral action by the United States or bilateral action from the EU. What it fears is a collective response. And so if you are able to get most of the rest of the, the leading trading partners around the world on the same page on a range of leading data and digital issues, then it, it puts China in a starkly different light. So. But that's that. All of this requires uh, a lot of work by the United States and its like-minded partners. If there's one thing I want people to take away from this podcast, it's that the answer to China's the threat posed by China's digital ambitions is to pump ourselves full of steroids. I think that's a good um, note to end on. Thank you guys so much for joining for this conversation. Um, it hasn't exactly been reassuring, but it has been fascinating and a blast. The other thing, in addition to the steroid line, um, I do also think that we should try, I'm using my pulpit here as guest moderator, try to convince NBR to do an audiobook version of the report, because I could listen to you three talk about these subjects probably all night long. Um, but thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. Asia Insight Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.